Well, morning, church family. Happy spring break to those of you who are still living in the spring break world. I know for some of you that's been a while, for some of you, you have waited every moment for this week to not have to go hang out at school, and so happy front side of spring break. Uh, this morning, let me, let me just pose a question to us this morning. If, if you had to try to target what you think is the quickest way, the quickest way to destroy what God would want to do in and through a church, what would you pick? What would you pick? And let me, let me tell you, as I, as I asked this question this morning, I, um, I believe what we will see in our passage today certainly is one of the top, if not the top way that the enemy would use to wreck everything what God would want to do in a church family and through a church family. And I, and I go further than that to just tell you this has been an interesting week because every possible thing that could happen this week, I won't say every possible, that's a little pastor exaggeration. It feels like every possible thing that could happen this week to uh, infringe on uh, the quality of my prep time has happened this week. Not only that, but then I look at uh, just even things that have gone on. Time change was last night. We're glad some of you made it through there. I won't count it against you if you fall asleep this morning. Our daughter decided that time change Sunday is a family holiday and woke up right as the time changed and stayed up all night. And my wife was extremely generous and gracious to let me get some sleep so that I would have half a brain this morning. But I just simply say this to say, when I look back at this week and see all sorts of things that have gone, I do look at it and acknowledge there is some element of spiritual warfare there because this truly is what we will see today. I think what is the most major way to wreck what God would do in a church and through a church and the quickest way to stall it. So if you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open up. We're back in the book of Philippians and we are in chapter four, Philippians chapter four. And you'll remember last week, we, as we finished out chapter 3, we came into verse 1 of chapter 4, where we'll pick up today, and we, we saw last week, as Paul commands us to stand firm in the Lord, that in the face of opposition, in the face of uh, many who are capitulating and deconstructing their faith in the midst of a culture that is hostile to the gospel, you and I are called to stand firm, to be rooted and planted, to be unwavering as a church and individual believers. And we walked through and saw how we do that. There's a certain attitude of maturity. There is a, a heeding of the Spirit's conviction. There is a living in accordance with the standard of the Word. There is an imitation of faithful citizens of heaven. There is an eager waiting that should be present in us for the return of our Savior. And as we do these things in this way, stand firm. And that's where we pick back up this week. Look what Paul says, verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. And by crown, he's referencing uh, that crown would be the, the victor's wreath. That the victor of the Greek games would finish and come in first, and instead of giving them the gold medal, what they would give is this, this wreath that would go upon their head to signify that they were the victor. He says, you are my crown, my victor's wreath, and in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, we didn't look hard at this last week, but did you notice all the terms of affection from Paul for this church? 
my beloved, those whom I love, agape, unconditionally, whom I long to see. There is this deep yearning in my heart to see you, to be present with you. You are my joy and crown. It's interesting. Paul talks elsewhere of churches, calling them to walk well in the gospel so that at the the standing before Christ, they would be his joy and crown. But here he speaks of this church, not in a future sense, but they are presently his joy and his crown. There is a deep sense of affection, of longing, of passion from Paul for this church. Everything that Paul has written, everything we will see today, even for how much today has potential to step on every one of our toes, just like it would have the Philippian church, it is not driven by some kind of self-inflated ego from Paul. It's not driven by some kind of hypercritical spirit. It's not what is driven. It's driven by a deep love and affection that the church in Philippi would know Jesus to the fullest possible extent and would experience his very best both personally and corporately as a family. And church family, as we walk through this today, understand that's the heartbeat behind it. It's not to be picky. It's not to be hypercritical. It is to sit here and to say, you and I, we don't know the Apostle Paul, but we are Christ's beloved. We are Christ's joy. And Christ calls us to stand firm, to be unmoving. And as you and I seek to fulfill that call to stand firm in the Lord, here is the first of several challenges we will face. Look with me, verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So all of a sudden, we're introduced to a couple people here. There are two ladies, one by the name of Euodia, one by the name of Syntyche. And I will do my best to say those correctly all this morning and not just quickly say them. And and they're obviously not names we use commonly today. Euodia, uh, Euodia means one who has arrived. Syntyche means happy chance, good luck, pleasant acquaintance. Two ladies, and Paul writes, and literally in, in the Greek, what he says is, I urge, I beseech, I plead. And he, he repeats it with each of the ladies' names. He says, Euodia, I plead with you. Syntyche, I plead with you to live in harmony is how my Bible translates it. Literally, it's a word we've seen many times throughout the book of Philippians already. It's the word, I'm pleading with you to lead your thoughts in a certain way, to live in harmony, to think with one accord, to think the same way, and not just to think the same way, but he, he, he gives it a category, to think the same way in the Lord. There is a way of thinking that is befitting a follower of Christ. There is a way of thinking that is reflective of how Christ thinks. And in that way, I am pleading with you to think together in that way. Not only is it what we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to think, but but the way it's constructed is also why I'm urging you to think this way in the Lord because you are to be in submission to the Lord. 
which tells us a little bit about what's, what's going on. We don't, we don't know a lot here. We're not given a lot of information. In fact, it's easier to look at what we know and determine what's going on by what's not said than it is based on what's said. We, we see there's two ladies, Yodia, Syntyche. We also see there's a third person referenced. In verse 3, it says, indeed, true companion, or your Bible may say, yoke fellow. There is someone there in the church in Philippi whom Paul looks at and sees as a true companion, someone who is like-minded, like-spirited as Paul. Paul's used these terms before. Think back to chapter 2 when we saw Timothy and Epaphroditus. This is a term Paul would use of someone who's driven with that same drive that he has to, to know Christ, to know him deep to know him fully. This is someone who would be actively engaged and on mission with God. This is someone who is placing the good and the need and God's purposes in the church above their own agenda. He writes this person whom we do not know. By the way, it doesn't tell us who this person is. The best guess I could find in all of my study is that it's possible that it's the Dr. Luke, but we don't know. But there is someone there that Paul sees as a true companion. He says, these two ladies, I'm asking you. In fact, actually, whereas he urges, it's not a command. He's pleading with the two, uh, the two women. He commands this true fellow, he says, to help. To help, to take and bring together, to lay hold of, to seize and bring together. Help these women. Help them. Help them why? What's going on? We don't know what. But something has happened between these two women. Who? What do we know about these two women? Well, look what, look what he says in verse 3. They shared in Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel, and their names are written in the book of life. Here's what we know about these ladies. These ladies are, in fact, real, legitimate, true followers of Christ. They have been saved by grace through faith. Their names are written in the book of life. Not only that, but as it comes to their engagement in ministry, Paul uses a term there that if you flash back to chapter 1, verse 27, when he calls us to strive side by side together, he uses the same term to say these two women. He says, true companion, help them come back together because these two women, they have been engaged with me. They have, they have been active in working and sharing and spreading the gospel. Which means by default, church family, for that word to be used of them means they were sharing the gospel. They were active in ministry. Not only that, but they would have very likely suffered hardship for the gospel. These aren't just two ladies sitting over on the sidelines, uh, cackling back and forth, saying that these, these are ladies who are engaged and active. They are, they are leading in ministry and, and setting an example in the life of the church. And it's possible, it's possible, we don't know for sure, but if you go back to Acts, when Paul first comes into the city of Philippi, he doesn't find a synagogue to go to to teach. So in the absence of the synagogue, he makes his way down to the river, and it says that there at the river, he found a group of women who were working, and, and they were open to having a conversation about the gospel. And the first one of those women who came to faith in Christ was a woman by the name of Lydia. And the church began to meet in her home. Well, it's possible, as there were several other ladies there, it's possible Euodia and Syntyche were some of the first believers and founding members of the church. Now, it's a little hearsay, but it's possible. But somewhere along the way, these two women who have walked well with the Lord, who have lived on mission for the Lord, who have walked, something has happened and a rift has occurred. 
a rift has occurred where they are now at odds with each other. They are at odds in the way they think with each other. And this rift in the eyes of Paul poses an unbelievable threat. Because can you imagine? Think about this. This letter, Philippians, it was written to the church, and it would have been read by the pastor. So I want you to picture this with me, church family. <laughs> our, our beloved brother, Apostle Paul, he's in prison, and, and you show up here for church today, and we sing some songs, and I were to get up here and say, I've got great news, church family. We have a letter from the Apostle Paul. He's written us. So I'm going to read it today in place of the sermon. And you can imagine we're reading it and we're all reading it. And imagine we get to this. I plead, Euodia. I plead, Syntyche. Or I will resist the urge to use anyone's name lest someone start <laughs> spreading rumors. But imagine your name all of a sudden getting dropped. To you and I, that would be, oh my goodness, wow, we have really stepped up the level of intensity in reality, Paul using their names is a reflection that he is deeply concerned for the danger and destruction the rift poses for the spiritual health of Euodia and Syntyche. He is also deeply concerned for the danger and destruction their rift means for the church. Because inevitably, as you and I can imagine, if there's really this rift, it's this well-known. You're going to have some who are in Euodia's camp. You're going to have some who are in Syntyche's camp. Now, what's the nature of their conflict? We don't know specifically the nature of their conflict, but it seems likely that there's a few things it's not. It does not seem that the conflict is one where one of them was teaching something that's false, a theological conflict. Why? Because Paul does nothing to correct any false theology here. And if you read the rest of Paul's letters, you know if there's a theological conflict, Paul doesn't hold back. He addresses it. He's not afraid to name names, to call people out to address theology. It also does not seem that what's taking place here is some kind of a moral or ethical conflict where, where maybe Euodia wavered over here into sin and Syntyche went after her and Euodia is refusing to, refusing to repent. We know it's not that because that's also a situation Paul addresses in his letters. And in that case, only the one who would be in sin would be the one getting called out. No, it seems what is likely here is somehow the conflict is over something that, as far as the issue itself, is likely entirely neutral. It's not that they have poor theology. It's not that one of them stumbled into sin. It's that somewhere there was a personal or ministerial rift that has now become sin because of the way it is dividing two followers of Christ and potentially the rest of the church. Church family, understand, as we look at this passage today, 
We all of a sudden go from speaking in lofty goals. We saw chapter one being on mission with God, being a gospel-driven church, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, being on witness out in the world as a unified body. We saw in chapter two that that in order to do that, there is this way of thinking to to think humbly, to put on the humility of Christ. Not only that, but to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is taking God seriously. We see that we're to do it without grumbling and complaining. We see the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus as uh, encouragers and, and ministers to needs. We come into chapter 3 and we see this great appeal and call to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, to, to experience and, and know the fellowship of his sufferings, to, to be conformed to his death, to know the power, to, to see, obtain the resurrection from the dead. We've seen the attitude of maturity and, and here we're called to stand firm and all of a sudden we get really basic, practical, and personal. Because you see, church family, you and I are called to stand firm in the midst of opposition, not just from the world, but in the midst of opposition from a very real enemy. A very real enemy who is opposed to us as a family, who is opposed to our king, and he is opposed to our Lord's agenda in this world. He is an enemy who is crafty. He rules this world through culture. He's a liar and perverter of of truth. And he knows your weaknesses and my weaknesses better than likely we know ourselves. And because we have a real enemy, this call to stand firm is going to be challenged by the reality of real conflict. By the reality of conflict, church family. Listen, Paul's not, Paul's not making something up or this is not some kind of a rarity. We see conflict in almost every New Testament letter. Go to, go to Romans. There's, there's those that believe while Romans is Paul uh, explaining and defending the gospel that the reason he's doing so is because there is a conflict between the Jewish and the Greek portions of the Roman church. There's a cultural conflict that they're allowing to come between them. We see in 1 Corinthians there is a moral conflict as the Corinthian church is just terrible in their morality. We see in Galatians, there is a a dangerous theological conflict that is pulling the church to a works-based righteousness that Paul addresses. We see in the book of Philemon, there is a personal ethical conflict as Paul sends a, a, a slave of Philemon's back to Philemon and calls Philemon to treat him rightly as a free brother in the Lord. We see in 2 Timothy, Paul names specific names of people who have personally opposed him and opposed the true gospel. We see conflict because conflict is real. Paul himself faced ministerial conflict in Acts chapter 15 when when before leaving on the missionary journey where he would come to Philippi, he gets together with Barnabas and Barnabas says, we need to bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, no, John Mark quit the last journey. We're not bringing him back. And that disagreement, that conflict was so great between Paul and Barnabas that they would separate and go their separate ways. Barnabas, the one who was the first to really believe and accept Paul as a follower of Christ, to pour in to encourage him, this deep brotherhood and partnership. Paul is no stranger to conflict. And church family, what what this reminds you and I is this. Unlike some of those other churches I've mentioned, Philippians is by far one of, if not the healthiest church we see in the New Testament. 
This is a church, they're active in living on mission for the gospel. They're active in in witnessing for Christ. They are active ministerially. They are vibrant. They're growing. They're resilient. They're facing opposition and not backing down. They're generous. In fact, Paul will go on to say at the end of chapter 4, you know after I let you, no church other than you gave to help me. The whole occasion for this letter is they've sent Paul a financial gift and encouragement through Epaphroditus. This is a healthy, gospel-driven church, yet it's not immune from personal conflict. Which says, church family, we can be, and likely, as we seek to walk and be a healthy, gospel-driven church, understand the enemy will seek to sow conflict. Not only that, but you have two ladies here that from, from the basic things we know about them, here are two. These are not, these are not uh, half-hearted or, or, or these, these, are not, these are not half-hearted church members who just are content to come and take for themselves. These are ladies who are engaged. They are active. They are suffering for the cause of Christ. And yet even they are not immune from having personal con- conflict. Understand, church family, that means is don't look around the room. It's just, you look within it yourself. It doesn't matter how mature you are in Christ in this room. None of us are above falling into a dangerous conflict with another. We've got to have eyes wide open because conflict is real. And we see this kind of conflict. Now, let me be clear before I say this. There's two things to preface. One, the conflict we're dealing with here is not a kind of conflict where someone is off theologically or is off ethically. Those conflicts do exist, and there is a pattern laid out in Scripture for how to deal with those things, for how to approach a fellow follower of Christ who's in sin, how to address that. There is that. That is a passage in a sermon for another time, only because this is looking at a more personal conflict where it's not the, it's not the issue that is sinful, it's the way the two have responded to each other that is sinful. And we see this, church family. We see this between members and churches who disagree over style or preference or personality and and ministry. You can imagine Yodia and Sintiki. Yodia says, wait a minute. Why is Sintiki getting to start a Bible study that's competing at the same time as my Bible study? We already have a Bible study there. We don't need another one. Or you can imagine Sintiki maybe is a Philippian coffee snob. <laughs> I can't believe Euodia would have, would have picked Roman roast over Galatian roast. <laughs> Man, that says to all our visitors, we don't really care because we don't buy Galatian roast. We see these kind of conflicts, church family, all the time, whether it's what kind of coffee roasts are available and based on what they are, therefore, whether or not we actually care for people. We see this when inside of a church, we've got someone who's just had a bad day. Maybe they used words they shouldn't have, and all of a sudden, the other person takes it personally, latches hold to it, and we've got two people at odds. We see it when all of a sudden we have a personal beef with someone else. Maybe it's over their style or their personality. Are they cool or not cool? I'll go to this Bible study, but not this person's Bible study because of that. 
Maybe we see it over, well, that person, I remember back in the day when I was a kid, ooh, that person's parents let them watch Power Rangers. That person's parents don't. Boom. <laughs> Clicks that are formed. I like this or that. We see these kind of conflicts between members when we disagree over style, preference, personality, and ministry. We see these kind of, these kind of disagreements take place in churches between the laity and the clergy, especially when change occurs in methods or programmings or, or teaching happens to step on her toes. You, you can imagine maybe Euodia, maybe Euodia is the pastor's wife, I don't know. And Syntyche's a, a, a deacon's wife, I don't know. And, and maybe the pastor says, hey, Philippians, we need to look at planting another church on the other side. And all of a sudden, Syntyche's against that. And then Yodia's trying to defend her husband. I don't know. Or maybe Yodia and Syntyche, they're founding members of the church. And they go, pastor, how dare you try to make our music sound more Greek and less Roman? Or how dare you, pastor, not have our traditional celebration of Rome? I don't know what it is, but we see this, church. I mean, understand, I've told you this before. I said it yesterday at the senior adults' breakfast. I'll say it again. I am not a passive-aggressive preacher, so do not read in to any example I use here. What I am trying to do prayerfully is trying to use examples that are common to churches but that run into specific things for us so that we understand really the scope of what's here. So don't read in. There's no hints here. But the kind of conflict that exists when the pastors pray through and, and think maybe we need to alter some of what we're doing musically or Maybe we need to do something different than the way we've done it before. Maybe it's a big Sunday like a Christmas concert or a patriotic celebration that all of a sudden maybe we need to do it a little differently or try something different. Or maybe it's the Sacred Cow Church event. Maybe it's should it be VBS or should it be sports camp. All of a sudden decisions are made and all of a sudden there become conflicts. And listen, everything I've named personal or, or between members or between, between church between laity and clergy, what style of music, what kind of coffee, who's cool or not cool, VBS or sports camp, certain Sunday celebrations, not a single one of those things are listed in Scripture as a thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Every one of them is morally neutral. Yet how many churches have divided along whatever lines those things fall because of conflict over morally neutral things. How dare we build that new sanctuary and not put church red carpet? Or you'll laugh at this one, but this is a true story. We're going to split the church because that water fountain went there instead of there. That is why the reality of conflict has to be seen because conflict is so destructive. Conflict is destructive, church family, because it destroys the humility, the harmony, the unity that must mark the church which walks with Christ. The humility and harmony that is vital and necessary if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, especially a gospel-driven church standing firm in the face of opposition both from this world and from the spiritual forces of darkness led by our chief enemy, Satan. 
It destroys that because James 4 tells us where this kind of conflict comes from. James 4 says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. Where do these kind of conflicts arise, church family? They arise from self-centered minds which is why they destroy humility and unity. Conflict like this flows out of self-centeredness. It feeds personal ego and ambition, and it creates partisan factions. An unwavering commitment to oneself, one's pleasure, one's preference, one's style. The church exists for me, myself, and I. That is the source of these kind of conflicts. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, this is the way the Gentiles think. This is the way they lead their thoughts. And he begins to speak of things like letting the sun go down on your anger with another, uh, gossiping behind people's backs, being unforgiving when Christ forgave, joking in indecent and coarse and crass ways. It's this kind of thinking that destroys that But ultimately, the conflict is so destructive because it is a poor reflection of our Savior to whom we claim to belong. Listen to Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the night before he goes to the cross out of John 17. Listen to what he says. Praying to the Father, he says, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is, that you preserve them from falling into his pattern and way. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Set them apart. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And here, listen, church family, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You know what that means? It says, I'm not only asking for the 11 apostles that are still loyal to me, Father, I'm asking for every single person that will come to faith in me that will be saved by grace through faith through their testimony. You want to know who that is? If you're in this room saved by grace through faith, raise your hand. It's you and I, you and me. We're the ones who believe as a result of the apostle's testimony. It's us. This is his prayer for us. And he says this, I don't ask for these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Do you catch what he prays there, church family? He says, Father, you and I are one. There is a unity that exists between us. When you and I allow conflict to divide, church family, we offer a poor glimpse and in, in, in representation of our God. Not only that, but he said, we are one. I'm praying that they would be one so that the world believes. You want to know why conflict is so destructive? Not just because it destroys you and I, and it destroys how we relate with God, and it destroys how we relate with one another, but because all of those people who are on the outside in the lost, dying, broken in world look in at us, and they see something fraudulent. It's destructive because it's a poor witness. And here's just remind you, church family, Jesus said we are the light of the world. Not we are the light of the world when we've got our act together. We are the light of the world, which is why we better get our act together. 
So church family, understand there is a reality of conflict. We've got to be aware of that reality because there is a true destruction that comes from conflict. And because conflict is both real and its destruction is dangerous, as we seek to stand firm in the Lord, what do we do? Well, he tells us. We take the same mind in the Lord. How do we go about handling conflict? We be of like mind in the Lord. Do you see that in the passage? I I plead with you, Yodia. I plead with you, Sintiki. Take the same mind in the Lord, in submission to the Lord. Understand, church family, the response of you and I to take the same mind in the Lord, it's not optional. To take the same mind in the Lord is a matter of our own submission and surrender, being on our knees in a posture of humility before God. And in that submission, what is it that we are doing? We are taking the same mind in the Lord. We are thinking like Christ. How does Christ think? Hope your Bibles are still open. Just turn your page back. How does Christ think? Philippians 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, same word, have the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important to yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to Think of one another as more important than myself. We're to walk in a church and not go, what can church do for me? But we're to walk in and go, what could church do for you? And you, and you, and you, and you. Not just what can church, but, but how can I serve you? Do nothing from selfishness or, or vain conceit, vain glory, but in humility of mind. And where does all this come from? Let, let's look at verse 5. Have this attitude, have this mind. Think in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard his equality with the God as a thing to be grasped, to be lorded over us, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, that is a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, the point of death, even death on a cross. How are you and I supposed to, to respond to conflict? We're to think like Christ, which means we think humbly. means we see God correctly for who he is. He is God, not us. It's his church, not ours. We're his people bought at a price, not our own. That believer you have conflict with isn't just a person you have conflict with, it's a person Jesus bled to save. And is precious to his heart just as much as you're precious to his heart. It means we see God correctly. It, see we, it means we see ourselves rightly in light of that. We see ourselves, our value, our worth, in light of the fact that Christ died to save us. But we also see it's not about us. We see each other as important. If we think like Christ and walk in humility, it means we use soft words, not harsh words. Soft words that turn away wrath. If we're going to be humble like Christ, it means we're willing to offer forgiveness when we've been wronged. It also means we're humble enough to acknowledge when we're the one in the wrong and to ask that person we're in conflict with for forgiveness. 
It means, church family, if we're to walk and think like Christ and to think humbly, then we have to die to ourselves and to our style and preference because it is not about us. We're not only to think like the Lord, but we're to, we're to think like Christ. Being of like mind means we're to mission like Christ. He mentions both of these ladies at one time were active and engaged in the mission of God. We've seen that part of the destruction of, of this kind of personal and petty conflict is there because, or is destructive because it damages that witness church family. There's a lot of things we can get hung up on that are personal. And again, hear me, I'm not addressing when a person has sinned or when we're teaching heresy. We're not, there's, there, that's a different issue of how we deal with that conflict. We're, we're talking about, we've gotten into a personal conflict over something that's nothing, but now it's something because of how we're treating each other. It's really easy to realize my preference is that important when all of a sudden I open my eyes, look out in that world and realize how many people I bump into every day are dying and destined for eternity in hell. See, church family, if all of a sudden we put our eyes to be on mission, to take on God's mission, it will change because we will be of like mind on path for the same purpose of the same mission. I remember a story from one pastor. They, he, he came into a church and, and there were some things that had to, had to be changed and moved and all of a sudden some people started coming to faith in Christ and, and a young man got baptized that day and, a, and a, an older gentleman in the church walked up and said, Pastor, you know, I don't like a lot of your changes you've made. But if your changes mean we see people like that come to faith in Christ, you do whatever you want. We gotta reach people for Christ. Amen. Again, don't read into that. It's not a hint. Pastor, what are you about to change? But when change is done for the glory of God, it doesn't matter if we're all focused on the mission of Christ. We think like Christ. We mission like Christ. Church family, we love like Christ. Love is patient, kind, not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act in ways that are unfitting. Love does not seek its own, it is not easily provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, with rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Church family, if we're going to be of the same mindset of Christ, it means we think like Christ, we mission like Christ, it means we love each other like Christ. It means we're patient with each other. And by the way, remember, God's patience puts up with a lot of sinful dishonor on our part. In fact, why has the Lord not returned? Why is he slow as some count slowness according to Second Peter? Because he wishes that none should perish and all should come to faith in him. Amen. Doesn't mean that all will come to faith in him. But why is the Lord not returned yet? Because he wants to see as many who would respond, respond because he is patient. Love is not jealous. We don't get threatened and envious because we see someone else doing something that we wish we had. Instead, we rest securely in Christ. If love bears all things, it means I can choose to love a person when you're just having a bad day and you said something dumb you didn't mean, and instead of blowing it out of proportion, we can just have a conversation about it, love each other, and move on. Love believes all things. 
which means we give each other the benefit of the doubt. Endures all things means we endure the hard growing pains of being matured in Christ, church family. Even when sometimes that may mean one of us makes a mistake. Paul, speaking about this love, said this, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Church family, here's the reality with this kind of conflict. If we're going to love like Christ, it means we have to put behind petty, childish conflict because we're not supposed to stay children. Amen. The way of the mature, the way of the, the, the adult in Christ is not the way of childish, petty conflict. We are to live in harmony, to take on the same mind in the Lord. This is what he pleads for these two ladies. If they will think like Christ, if they will return to mission like Christ, if they will love like Christ, then whatever the conflict has been, they will sit down, they will resolve the conflict, and they will go out in harmony once again. But there's one other last part. He calls his true companion in the midst of this conflict to help them. Now listen, I don't know if we've got conflicts like this going, brewing with this and that or not, so that's why I say don't read into anything. If the Spirit touches you, that's the Spirit's work. But some of us in this room, maybe you're aware of a situation, you see something, and you and I on the outside, we are called to help others work through conflict. Well, how, how does one help work through conflict? Let me tell you what the character of, the, of, of us has to be. It means we don't get caught up in the conflict. We don't play sides. We don't take on the gossip. Rather, we stay on point with knowing Jesus, with walking in humility, with loving the body, with living on mission, with, with in, 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 in seriousness going about our salvation. This is why he calls the, 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 the tr one true companion, the, the true yoke fellow. He says, I know you're walking well with Christ. How do we help? One, we do it by making sure our eyes, we're walking with Christ and we're not playing sides in the conflict. And then we proceed to follow what Scripture's laid out in those things. We, we call them to think like Christ, to mission like Christ, to love like Christ, all in submission to Christ. But it also reminds this. It says that some of us, sometimes that conflict will get to a point where maybe both sides are willing to reconcile, but it's just gotten to a point where there's a need for help. And this says, when you get to the point in a conflict that you need help, it's not a bad thing. Instead, to use the adage from when I was in RA training, raise your hand and ask for help. Raise your hand and say, I need help being brought back together. I need help. How do you know when you need help? When, when the conflict's not getting resolved. See, church family, here's the reality. The fastest way to wreck a church the fastest way to wreck a family of God that is hungry to know Jesus and to allow him to work in them and through them to reach the world, the fastest way to wreck that church is to create conflict and divisions around foolish things. It's to turn the eyes of the body away from our king and toward each one of our own personal interests. It's for us to love ourselves rather than each other in submission to the Lord. 
So church family, part of my prayer for us is as we look at this, as we see this, is just that we will be, that we will have eyes open to the reality of the conflict, that we'll be sensitive to it because we recognize the destruction of it, and that you and I, as we relate to one another, we will take the mind of Christ. We will think like Christ toward each other. We will be on mission like Christ with each other. We will love each other like Christ calls us to love each other, and we will do it all in submission to Christ, and where we can, we will step up and help with conflict. And when we're the ones who have fallen into the conflict because not one of us is above it, we will walk in enough humility to say, help. Because if we will be that church, church family, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be times we'll have this or that. There's, there's conflict as a reality of living in a broken world, but there's a way to handle it where we remain one body for one purpose, for his glory that shines to all the world around us. Let's pray. Father, God, I just have seen too many churches wrecked. Wrecked by conflict not conflict that comes because someone stepped into sin and they refuse to repent, but the church is standing firm. Not conflict that comes because they're, they're trying, but conflict that comes over things that aren't one way or another, but all of a sudden the conflict becomes so intense and the divide becomes so great that there's a splitting in the church. And all of a sudden the church that should be moving all ahead and as one body is now a body at war with itself. And Father, it's a poor reflection of you because... God, you are triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you are never in conflict with yourself. So, Father, may we here at First Baptist Pflugerville be a people that walk well with you, that walk humbly, that aren't a part of this church family for what we can get out of it and aren't in this church family for what we can make out of it, but are a part of this church family because you are our God, you have placed us here, and we love and care for one another as we go out as one on mission for you. And Lord, if there is any conflict in this place today, God, may we deal with it in the way that scripture says. If there's someone we need to go apologize to, then during this invitation, may we get up and go apologize to them. And step outside and, and, and handle it. May, if there's someone that needs help, may they ask for help, Lord. But may we not ignore responding to you now. Holy Spirit, as you move, we look to you, Christ. And it's in your name I pray.